Bible and turn to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, if you need a Bible and don't have one, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere around you, and Ezra chapter 1 is on page 389 of that Bible. Before we read together, I just want to underline uh, what has already been underlined for us, and that is our missions conference in the next couple of weeks. Uh, And just to make you aware, if you're not already, that along with our missions conference every year, we give a special offering called our Offering of Praise. Now, if you're a member of Gray Road, you would have gotten a letter about that in your box a couple of weeks ago. There are some extra letters and envelopes on the, uh, the round, whatever they're called, rounders. They spin around. Don't spin them around, but they turn around. There's some on those as well. Uh, and every year we seek to give particularly to missions efforts. Uh, our goal this year is $40,000, to give $40,000. You can give online. There is a special place that you can give for your offering of praise. If you want to give through the kiosks that are in the, uh, the foyer, just make it very clear, whether it's on the check or on the envelope, that that particular gift is for the offering of praise. But I want to just talk through what, what that $40,000 is meant to be for. The first $25,000 that we give is going to be set aside for our Judea project, for our effort to start a new church in a community close by. And so the first $25,000 will actually be set aside. Lord willing, we will do this again next year so that those who go out from here to plant that church, that we can send along at least that seed money with them, okay? Um, Also, the the next $2,500 of that offering will go to John and Pam Sharp, who are here, who are our partners. They are coaches helping missionaries get on the field, and part of what they do is travel to visit missionaries who are newly on the field and to encourage them. Those first months, that first year, incredibly difficult, so the encouragement is so important, and their plan is to travel to Ecuador uh, to… to encourage some new missionaries who are there. Uh, The next $2,500 after that, we will give to the Indianapolis Theological Seminary. Uh, We have given to them before through our Good Friday service, but they are a seminary here in town, only started maybe about 10 years ago or so. Um, But they work to train uh, pastors and church leaders, ne- the next generation of pastors and church leaders here locally. And so we want to invest in that. They are uh, a fa- it is a faithful seminary. These are faithful men uh, who are teaching uh, and, and preparing the next generation. And then uh, after that, uh, the last 10,000, typically we always include something regarding the building. We will put 10,000, Lord willing, the last 10,000 into what is called our maintenance escrow account. This typically goes for things that pop up. Like right now, we're waiting for uh, uh, the final numbers on some bits of our shingled roof that need to be repaired, this kind of thing. But you'll see the priority. If we only give $30,000, none of it will go to the maintenance escrow fund, you see. It starts at the top and works its way through. And so we want to prioritize our giving in that way. It's not that we don't want to take care or that we wouldn't do necessary repairs. It's that uh, we want to prioritize uh, that which we ought to prioritize. All right? So if you have questions about that, I'm glad to answer them uh, one-to-one. Now, when it comes to 
coming to Ezra, we have come a long way in uh, our series in the storyline of the Bible, and we are at another crucial turning point in that story. You will remember that the Jews were sent into exile because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to God. They have been there. They are still there. Um, But God does something. God removes… the Babylonians are the ones who took them into exile, but God removes the Babylonians from power and replaces them with the Persians. Now, that may not seem like much of anything to you, but actually it's very significant and it's a huge turning point. And Ezra chapter 1 tells us what happens once the Persians come to power. So, let's read Read that together. Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit of God says to us. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus the king brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver and a a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, we know that the grass withers and the flower falls, but your word will stand forever. And so we pray today by the work of your Spirit that you will help us to hear clearly what your word teaches here. Not only that we will learn it, but that we will love it and believe it and be changed by it. Through these words, show us our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. We all uh, face various kinds of dark days in our lives, but one of the things that 
is true, at least anecdotally, is that the longer those dark days go on, the more likely we can be to think they will never end. There is no silver lining around this dark cloud. There is no light at the end of this tunnel, unless it's the light of a freight train that seems to be headed right at me. We can, we can begin to think that way. We can begin to feel hopeless because the darkness is too thick. It is too strong. It will not lift, and so we feel hopeless. And no doubt, some of the Jews who are in Babylon, who are living in exile, must have felt hopeless. They lost everything when Jerusalem fell. They lost their homes. They lost their land. They lost their way of life. Many of them lost loved ones that they could never properly bury because they were carted off to exile. On top of that, the temple which stands at the center of their religious life is destroyed. The walls that surrounded their beloved Jerusalem burned to the ground. And they've been in exile for decades, it seems hopeless. And then one day, they learn that Cyrus has come to power, and that may not mean anything to any of them. But not long after that, before a year is up, a press conference is called, and Cyrus's press secretary makes the announcement that if you're a Jew and you want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, then go. Can you imagine what must be running through their minds after this kind of announcement is made? I mean, some of them surely would be happy, but some of them don't know what to think. You imagine the men gather around, they've all got their styrofoam cups full of coffee and wondering... What is behind this? What is he up to? What are we supposed to make of this? Well, what Ezra 1 tells us is actually that God is up to something. That God is behind all this. And that God sovereignly works to give His people hope and a future. Now, how does God do this? Well, there's one word that comes a couple of times in Ezra chapter 1 that I, that, that I just zoomed in on, and I want to zoom in on it. I want to latch on to it to carry us through understanding Ezra 1. What does God do? Well, God stirs. How does God sovereignly work so that His people have a hope and a future? God stirs in Ezra 1. The first thing I want you to see is that God stirs Cyrus. God stirs Cyrus. Look at the end of verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, Cyrus is nothing like the Babylonian kings, all right? If the Babylonians come and take over, you know what they want from you? Fear. 
They want you to fear them, and they are easy to fear because they are violent and they are deadly and they are oppressive and they sometimes don't even take prisoners. I mean, they, bloodshed is the name of the game, total dominance. Cyrus is different, though. Cyrus doesn't want you to fear him. Cyrus wants you to love him. So often when Cyrus takes over, he doesn't actually deport people from their homes. He doesn't force you to take on his religion like the Babylonians did with the Jews in exile. Cyrus thinks all gods deserve worship. He's polytheistic in that sense. So if you've got a god or gods that are special to you, well, then you can worship them. So when this decree is made that these Jews can go back and rebuild their temple, nobody in Persia is really surprised. Uh, This is not going to be trending on social media that Cyrus has made this. This is just Cyrus being Cyrus when he says this, verse 2, "'The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel.' He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, as you hear Cyrus say something like that, don't come to the conclusion that Cyrus has converted to Yahweh worship. He has not converted whatsoever. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is a very common way of looking at deities in the ancient world, that they inhabit particular places. You go there, that's your God. You go there, that's the other God. You go there, there's another God. You go to Jerusalem, that's this Yahweh God. That's the Jews' God. That's where He resides. So really, as, as Cyrus says this, he isn't confessing his faith. He's actually playing to his audience. I mean, this kind of thing happens today, doesn't it? We are over a year from the next presidential election, and campaign mode is fully on, right? And there are candidates, and their messages, as they go from one place to another, are reshaped based on their audience. So their platform sounds one way when they're in front of blue-collar factory workers. It sounds another way when they're in front of small business owners. And it sounds, it actually takes on religious overtones if they're in front of religious people. That's actually the kind of thing that Cyrus is doing here. He wants their love and he wants their loyalty, so he tips his hat to their God. He's even going to send the treasures that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to send those back. In verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. He's going to send those along. It's as if, it's as if Cyrus wants, is saying to the Jews, I am on a mission from God to rebuild his house. So Go. 
make Jerusalem great again. I mean, that's the kind of thing he's saying. He's claiming religious backing that's familiar to them in order to promote his own agenda. Now, dear friend, in the next 15 months, you will hear candidates at one point or another adopt a position that, that sounds a lot like the faith that you hold. And while I cannot speak of all of their hearts, I can say it is not beyond any politician to adopt the language that you love in order to promote the agenda that they want. And so we need to beware. Beware of proclaiming this guy is this kind of candidate. That guy is the Christian candidate. That guy is the Christian candidate. That gal, that this, that, that. Just beware. That's all I'm saying. I'm not going to have a list for you, you understand. You have to discern these things. You have to listen carefully. You will know them, Jesus says, by their fruits. Now, if you were there, if you were one of these uh, exiles in Babylon and you heard this decree, you might be tempted to think at first glance that these are the actions of a merciful man, of a shrewd politician even, of a generous king. But Ezra writes it in such a way that we actually know what's going on. The Lord stirred Cyrus. The Lord is behind this crucial turn in world history. Yes, Cyrus had a reputation for being a benevolent ruler. He did. Who's the one that put him there? God did. But even that wasn't good enough because Cyrus wouldn't have done it except that the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus to do this. The Lord is behind this crucial turn in world history. The Lord is at work. After all, you remember what Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And at this point, in 539 B.C., the Lord, the stream of water that is Cyrus's heart, the Lord turns it so that it accomplishes His will. And actually, that's what God said He was going to do with Cyrus about 200 years before Cyrus ever came to power. Through the prophet Isaiah, God specifically mentions Cyrus by name and then says this, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. He said he was going to stir him, and he stirs him. Now, in Cyrus's mind, I mean, it's just another day, isn't it? These are just another people. I'm just making another decision to accomplish my political purposes. But Ezra pulls back the curtain and shows that actually God has done this to accomplish divine purposes. Political purposes are the lower purposes, you understand, right? They're the lower things. We ought not to equate political purposes with divine purposes, ever. Because transcending every political purpose, even the best of political purposes, 
even the worst of political purposes, is the divine purpose. And that's what's winning here. It's not policy, it's providence. That's what's winning in 539 BC, and that's what wins at every crucial turn in world history, is providence. Friends, we live in a world where open opposition to the things of God is growing, sometimes by policy, sometimes by law, uh, 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 sometimes directly out of the mouths of politicians. But this moment, 2,500 years ago, should encourage us. Because the God who is sovereign in Ezra chapter 1 who holds this king's heart in his hand, that God is still sovereign today. And I want to be very honest with you, He may or may not turn the hearts of our leaders to bless His church. But we must never doubt that He can do it. We must never doubt where the hearts of Congress truly lie where the heart of the president truly lies, where those streams of water actually are, who is actually in charge here. And since he can, and since his purposes cannot be thwarted, and since his purposes cannot be thrown off track, we can trust him. You see, even even when the king's heart doesn't turn, It never slips out of God's hand. You have to believe that, don't you? That's the only place you find hope, is in knowing that God is good and God is sovereign and there is not one millisecond in human history that has slipped past Him, that is beyond His reach, that is outside His sovereign control, that won't contribute in the end to His divine purposes, even when we don't understand, which are many days, isn't it? Aren't there many days you have no idea what is it that God is doing in my life, in my family, in this world? You may not know the specifics, but the sweep of history will prove that God has not failed to do anything He set out to do. He's done everything He set out to do. And that's good news. It's good news that God stirs Cyrus. But secondly, God stirs His people. God stirs His people. Look at verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Okay? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go. Now, these Jews who are there have been there a long time. It's been 70 years. Some, a lot of these folks were born in exile. This is the only life they know. So there may be hesitation or even uncertainty about the idea of leaving what they know and going to Jerusalem. But the God who stirs Cyrus to make this proclamation is the same God who stirs His people to receive this proclamation and to act on it, God stirred up to go and to rebuild. 
You see, the notion of going back to rebuild the temple is not about let's all get worked up and have a building program. Okay, that's not what it is. It's not about restoring architecture. Going back is about God's glory. Going back and rebuilding the temple is about God's glory. The temple is where God meets with His people, where sacrifices for sin are made, where worship is offered to God. God stirs up his, the, the people's hearts so that His worship can be restored. Now, there's a lot of things that need to be restored, aren't there? I mean, homes need to be rebuilt. Farmland needs to be worked. Streets, you know, businesses. There's no shortage of things to rebuild, but what is on the priority? What is the priority of the heart of God as His people go back? The priority is worship. The priority is the temple. What needs to be rebuilt more than anything else is this people's relationship with God. That's what needs to be rebuilt. All manner of things may fall apart in our lives. But the thing that must be built is relationship to God. Right relationship to God. So God stirs them up. And here's the thing. When you, if, you, if we were to keep reading in Ezra, we'll find out He doesn't just stir them up once. Because once they go back, and once they start to rebuild, they face opposition. They face difficulty. They face an executive order to cut out the building, to stop immediately. So what does God do? He stirs them up again. How does He do it? Through prophets, through Haggai, through Zechariah, going, calling them to obedience, calling them to build the temple. God stirs them, and He stirs them again. Why? To accomplish His purposes. This is how God works today. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, think back to the moment, if you can, Maybe there was a particular moment you knew, this is when I came to Christ. Why is it that when you heard the gospel that day, you came to faith? Why is it that every other time you had heard the gospel before that, you were like, this is not for me, but that day everything was different? Why is it that the whole notion of the existence of God and of a Savior who dies on a cross and rises from the dead sounded like fairy tales until that day? I'll tell you why. Because God stirred. God stirred in your heart. And how is it that we can go on living for Christ? How is it that we can go on following Him and obeying Him and loving Him when we face opposition and we face difficulty or in the day that the governmental orders are handed down on us to cut it out? How are we going to stay steady in that? God stirs us. You see, this is what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How? For it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Must you obey? Yes. 
Do you have the strength to obey? No. God must stir in you. This is why we are a praying. We have to pray for these things. God doesn't just stir up the king. He stirs up his people. Now, the same is actually true, not just in our own individual lives, but in us as a congregation. What is it that needs to happen when God's Word is being preached? When Stephen stands here tonight and opens up Ephesians chapter 2 to preach it, what is it that must happen for God's purposes to be accomplished? God must stir both in Stephen and in us to accomplish His purposes as His Word is preached. When you go to lunch to share the gospel with that friend, what is it that must happen for real change to occur? God must stir in you and God must stir in the person who is listening. This is how all ministry takes place. God does it. We plant and we water, but God gives the growth. God gives the strength to the planter and strength to the water. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the, the, the planter and the water are nothing. It's only God who gives the growth. But dear friend, think about our Judea project. Think about this, okay? God has stirred up our pastors, our elders, to say we need to start a gospel-preaching church that holds to the authority and sufficiency of the Bible, not primarily because we're looking down on all of the other churches that are out there, not because we think we have the inside scoop on where every bit of faithful ministry is happening, but because the world needs more gospel-preaching churches that hold to the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. The world needs it. And so we're seeking to do it. God has stirred up the pastors, the elders. He's been stirring in us for a long time to do this. And we, it's just finally been stirred up. It's sloshing out of our cups onto you. That's how stirred we are. It's like there's, there's no perfect time to plant a church. There's no perfect time to start a new work. Why not now? Now's good. But do you know the Judea Project will never succeed if the pastors and the elders are the only ones who are stirred? If all of us sit around and say, man, that sounds like a great idea. Somebody really should do that. It won't just happen because it's been presented out there because it's been proclaimed, because it sounds like a good idea. It's only going to get done if God stirs some of you. Some of you. Some of you. To go and to build. To leave Gray Road, the place that has been home to some of you for a long time, the place where you serve, the place where you are rooted and planted. God needs to stir up some of you, not so that you will drive to a different location from your house every, every Sunday morning. You understand this? 
Whether we end up deciding that Bargersville is the place we are going to pursue or whether the Lord redirects us elsewhere, what we're not saying is that God needs to stir you up to drive from Franklin Township down to Bargersville every week. Or God needs to stir you up to drive from, where you know, your 35, 40-minute drive to Bargersville every week. Do some people do that on Sunday mornings? Yes. Is that ideal? No. Is it even less ideal when you're planting a new church? Yes. God needs to stir some of you up to move, to live there, to serve there to build there. Now, maybe he's already doing it, and maybe some of you are fighting against it, or maybe some of you are just wrestling with it because you know it's right, but it sure seems hard. Well, you're dead straight it's hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it to leave a place of familiarity and to step out and serve the Lord in a way that will require a new expression of your faith, a new trust in the Lord day by day. God needs to stir you. So God stirs Cyrus and God stirs His people. The third thing I want you to see is why God stirs. Why God stirs. Why does... Why does God do this? Why does God sovereignly work to give His people a hope and a future? I mean, these people have been nothing but trouble. They've been turning away from Him from the moment they were close. Why would He do this? Well, is it because He loves them? Well, He does love them, doesn't He? He says in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. But that's not the main thing. Is it because God is answering their prayers? Well, God is actually answering prayers because uh, Daniel, one of the one of the exiles in Babylon, who God raises up to a position of influence, he actually prays that God will act. Listen to his prayer in Daniel 9. O God, listen to our prayer. Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Is that why God is doing this? Because someone prayed for it? Well, God is answering prayer, but that's actually not the main thing either. Is it because God is compassionate? Well, He is, but that's not the main thing here. Is it because God is merciful? Well, He is, but that's not the main thing here. Ezra tells us what the main thing is. He doesn't say any of those things, even though they're all true. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's why God is doing what He's doing. It's because He said He would do it. He is doing what He said He would do. He is keeping the promise that He made through Jeremiah. What exactly was that promise? 
Well, it comes in a letter that we read in Jeremiah chapter 29. A lot of times we use this to talk to kids about, you know, future careers and all these kinds of things, or, or, or you know, it's at a graduation ceremony for, uh, you know, a homeschool co-op or a Christian school or something. But the fact is, this wasn't written to people who were in a very celebratory time in their life. They weren't looking for, you know, what career am I going to have? They were wondering, is there any hope? And this is what God says to them in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. That's where the letter came from. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a hope and a future. In other words, God is doing this because God's plan was never to leave them in exile. God's plan was always to bring them back. And He said He would do it. But there's even more. Look at this. These vessels in in verse 7 that, you know, Cyrus is going to send along the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. Did you know that God actually made promises about those vessels specifically? In Jeremiah chapter 27, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, meaning the vessels. God's going to come visit the vessels. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Now look, when you get down to verses 9 and 10, you look at, just look at verses 9 and 10. Look at it. You get to that stuff in your daily Bible reading. You know what you do when you start seeing 29 of this and 1,000 of that and 410 of this and the other? You're like, where is the next bit of this story that doesn't have a bunch of numbers in it? I hated math in school. And you just go on and you're like, where is the next piece? But let me tell you, all of those things matter. It seems tedious to us, but every gold bowl, every silver basin, every censer is a marker of God keeping His promise. So as they're wrapping these things in bubble wrap and putting them in the cardboard box to load on the, you know, to take with them, every one of them, God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. And then when they unpack them in Jerusalem, God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. This little thing that seems like nothing to us. It seems so tedious, so small, something we would overlook. We think it's nice that he's sending this stuff back, but it's not just nice. It's God keeping his promises. You see, while God loves his people and answers prayer and is compassionate and merciful, in the end, God does what he's doing in Ezra 1 for his glory, for his name's sake. You see, if God leaves them in exile and doesn't do what He said He would do, He was like, well, I know I said I was going to do that, but I've really thought about how ornery you people are, and I am not bringing you back. Do you know what would happen then? God's reputation would be ruined. His word easily dismissed. His authority diminished. He would cease to be this God. He wouldn't be worthy of worship. There'd be no reason to go back to Jerusalem. No reason to rebuild the temple. No reason to love and serve and adore Him. And yet, friends, He doesn't leave them there. 
He keeps his promise. He stirs Cyrus. He stirs the people. He brings them back. He fulfills his promise. I mean, look how committed God is to keeping his promises. He overthrows the Babylonian Empire in order to put Persia in place in order that Cyrus might make this declaration in order that his people might come. He moved heaven and earth to fulfill his promise. Now let me ask you, can you trust that kind of God? Can you believe his promises? Friend, we should hear this and be ready to believe every single thing he has said. When he promises forgiveness in response to our confession, I believe it. When he promises that the junk of my life is going to work out for my good and for his glory, I believe it. When he says he will never leave me or forsake me, no matter how I feel in this moment, I am believe it. When he says nothing will separate me from his love or snatch me from his hand, I can believe it. When he said, when Jesus says he has gone to prepare a place for us and he will come again that we may be where he is, I can believe it. When he says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, I can believe it. When he says When he says that all who believe in Jesus will have eternal life, I can believe it. Why? Because every promise that God has ever made, he either has kept it, is keeping it, or will keep it. None of them will fall to the ground. None of them. Why are we so hesitant to believe what he says? To believe that He hears us when we pray. To believe that our Father loves to give good gifts to His children. To believe that we don't need to worry about our food or our lives or our clothes because God takes care of birds and fields. Why are we so slow? In part because we don't know our Bible well enough. We don't see what God has done. He moves heaven and earth to do everything to save his people and accomplish his purposes and glorify himself. And we think, eh, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Oh, dear friend, don't toss this God aside. Everything he says, he will do. He does. He does. And in Ezra 1, he keeps his promise by stirring up Cyrus and stirring up his people so that they return to the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that's really the rest of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's a dark cloud inside this silver lining. Because when you keep reading the story, you find out that even though they're back in the land, once they're back in the land, they're also back in their patterns of sin. They're intermarrying with people who worship false gods. They oppress the poor among them. They violate the Sabbath. In other words, living in exile didn't change them. 
suffering temporary consequences for our sin does not change us. It didn't change them. And so while they're free from physical exile, there's a sense in which they are still waiting for the declaration to come that they are free from spiritual exile. And the Old Testament finishes that way, waiting for that declaration. And 500 years later, a young Jewish man, the son of a carpenter, walks into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads these words from Isaiah, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And when Jesus finishes reading those words, Luke tells us every eye is on him. He rolls up the scroll and he sets it down and he looks at them and says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one who proclaims freedom to captives. But he doesn't just proclaim freedom, he purchases it with his blood. When Jesus Christ goes to the cross, his blood pays the ransom for the sin that holds us captive. And through faith in Jesus, we're free. And we're changed. And we have a new heart and a new way of living. And you know what else we have? Real hope and a glorious future. Because it's through Jesus that God sovereignly works to give His people hope and a future. Do you have the hope of eternal life? Do you have a glorious future in heaven awaiting you? There's only one way to answer yes to either of those questions. And it's through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of the way that you sovereignly work to give your people hope and a future. Of the way that you stirred in this Persian king to let your people go of the way that you orchestrated history so that one of these Jews, a descendant of David, would be born not just as another baby, but as the Son of God to give us freedom from captivity. God, I pray that in seeing how you work to keep your promise in this chapter, that you would increase and strengthen our faith in the fact that you do everything you say you will do. When it comes to our lives, when it comes to our spiritual growth, when it comes to the sufferings that we face, when it comes to life after this life, when it comes to the very trajectory of the world, you do what you say you will do. And Father, we pray I pray for those even among us who don't have the hope of eternal life. They've been religious enough. 
growing up in a Christian family, being around church a lot, being able to answer lots of questions about the Bible, being able to fool lots of people. But Lord, we know that we can't fool you. I pray, God, that as they see that they need hope, that you would give them grace so that they turn to the Lord Jesus and find it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.